Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, we met in his hometown of Las Vegas, where, though ailing, he's still watching the political scene, had a lot to say about President Trump, the impeachment fight, the Democratic race for president, and much more. Good to see you again here in uh, your hometown, uh, Las Vegas. Uh, But you, let me uh, ask you, when you watch the news from Washington these days, you find yourself saying, man, I'd love to be back there now. No, I believe in the Old Testament verbiage that uh, there's a time for sowing, a time for harvesting, reaping. That was a time for me. I enjoyed every minute of the Senate, but it's not where I am now. It's uh, Senate's not my Senate. It's been really damaged significantly. What, what do you think now, as you're watching the story of the the moment, which is this Ukraine story unfold? Are you are you? Are you shocked? Are you surprised? No, there's nothing in this administration that surprises me anymore. The answer is no. It's not often in the history of the United States that somebody self-impeaches. I mean, he admits in national television what he did was against American policy, against American law. You can't go to a foreign government and have them investigate your opponent. Yeah, but uh, you know what his answer is. His answer is, um, yeah, so I did it. And uh, I was just investigating corruption. And, you know, everybody does it. He then came out and said, China should do this as well. There's a brazenness to his response. He's really challenging. Uh, well, but when you have not one whistleblower, now there's two, maybe three, who have alleged with their whistleblowing that crime has been committed. And all you have to do is have a basic understanding of the law in America. You can't do what he did and go unpunished. Do you think that he was uh, withholding aid as leverage to to pressure the Ukrainians? Of course, he, that's what he did. That's, the evidence is very clear. So you, you, you're, you concur with Speaker Pelosi in beginning these impeachment proceedings? I think Nancy Pelosi. When I was a leader, she was a speaker the first time. Yeah. I never wor- have worked with anyone who is as visionary as she is. And she has absolute control of her caucus. That's, and when you have a body of 435 people, which she deals with, she controls that. And that's what a speaker does. And she has set an example for everybody else. Um, 
Yeah, tell me about, about her. You know, the president uh, uh, suggested uh, this week that, uh, she be, that she's also guilty of treason. He called her nervous Nancy, but she doesn't look nervous to me at all. Nancy Pelosi is a true patriot. I found her to be someone who really understands the issues and somebody who is courageous enough to carry them forward. She doesn't do anything on the fly. She is prepared and has her troops in order before she does anything. The consensus opinion, and Trump has amplified this, is that if this were to go to your old body, to the United States Senate, that he, there's almost zero chance that he would be convicted because it would require 20 Republicans to concur. Um, is that your read as well? One of the things that I'm disappointed in about Washington is what the Senate has become. I'm also tremendously disappointed in what the Republican senators have not become. They have not become the Mark Catfields of the world, the John Chafees, the John Hines, who were Republican senators who did what they thought was the right thing to do. And we have these Republicans who are afraid to speak out against things that he does that are absolutely wrong, and they know they're wrong. The only person we've gotten to say anything is Mitt Romney, and Sass has said something about Nebraska. Other than that, they don't say anything. Yeah, you were pretty tough on Romney when he was running for president, and uh, I, th I think I saw somewhere recently that you called him a national treasure. So Well, here's how that all happened. There's no question about it. I, when he was running for president, I had learned that um, he didn't, uh, there, it became that he didn't pay taxes. That certainly is not true. But I alleged, and that has proven to be the case, that he didn't pay a fair amount of taxes. That's over and over with now. After it was over with, I had uh, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Levitt, Mike Levitt, set a meeting for us. We sat down and talked for several hours. He acknowledged that he didn't do some things in my behalf the way probably he should have. And I acknowledge I'd done a lot of things that in hindsight maybe I could have handled a little differently. So we shook hands and went on about our business. And I follow him. I keep in touch with him. I think he's a really doing a good job as a senator. Do you think that there will be, uh, you mentioned him, will there be, if there is a uh, impeachment trial and the evidence is compelling, and you suggest that the evidence already seems compelling uh, to you, do you think that there will be some Republicans who will vote for conviction? Well, of course, that depends on what evidence is put forward. Mm -hmm. It's not that simple. You know, I served as a, a juror on the impeachment of Bill Clinton, and it was really interesting how they had the chief justice there to determine what can come in and what can't go in. It's a very formal proceeding, and a lot depends on how well the managers do that are presenting that case to the Senate. So, yes, I think a decent case can be presented to the Senate, but unless something changes dramatically, the Republicans are afraid that Trump will question them in a primary, and they're more afraid of being reelected than doing the right thing for the country. You saw uh, Senator Johnson maybe on Sunday on, on Meet the Press. Uh, he had suggested previously to the Wall Street Journal that he had been told by Ambassador Sunland that uh, the president was holding up aid 
as a as a uh, a lever to get the Ukrainians to do what he wanted them to do. But he came on the show and he was very overwrought. And by the end of it, he was saying he didn't trust the FBI, he didn't trust the CIA. Well, he obviously doesn't trust himself because if he did, he would have said something about it. If Trump did what Johnson acknowledged, I think he should have gone to the uh, FBI himself. Lindsey Graham was someone you were closely with. Uh, across the aisle, and you, you've said nice things about him uh, in the past. He's become a, uh, a very staunch supporter uh, of the president. It's amazing what happened to him when John McCain died. He suddenly was no longer uh, a John McCain Republican. He became a South Carolina, I want to get reelected Republican, and he is a tote and fetch guy for the president. It is so, I had such admiration for him. I'm so disappointed in what has happened to him. His whole personality has changed since John passed. The, um, we, we were talking before we started rolling about, uh, about uh, Trump's uh, sort of instincts, uh, political instincts, setting apart the substance of these matters. Uh, you have to acknowledge he has, a, I always call it kind of a feral genius, but he's got a, uh, an instinct for politics. His strategy here is to say, I'm not corrupt, they're corrupt, they're the ones who are guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who are treasonous, uh, and it's to muddy the waters, and it's amplified by his uh, networks, uh, both his media networks and his uh, supporters. It's a cynical strategy, but, but might it be an effective one? I used to think that Donald Trump was not too smart. I certainly don't believe that anymore. I think he isn't somebody that reads a lot of books, never has. I don't think he's intellectually a powerhouse, but he is basically a very, very smart man. No matter what the subject, any argument he involves himself in, it's on his terms. You're always arguing against him. He never, never is willing to debate an issue on terms that aren't his. So how do you deal with that? If you're a candidate, for example, running against him, how would you advise they deal with that? Well, he's pretty well set that up. He's not, there are not, got people want to run against him. They have a pretty good case to make, but they have no place to make it because he controls the party so much that They've eliminated primaries in most every state. What about Democratic candidates? They all call you, I'm sure. What is your counsel? Well, I, what I say initially, and I say it right here on your show, anyone that thinks Trump's going to be beaten easily should have another thing coming. He is a man who has a stalwart of 40% people out there who vote for him no matter what he does. As Donald Trump said, I could shoot somebody in Times Square. They would still support me. Yes. That's sad, but probably true. So I, number one, I repeat, he is not going to be beaten easily. It's going to take a campaign of wisdom and patience, but he is beatable for sure. Um, you, you mentioned the Bill Clinton impeachment trial in uh, 1998. There is this uh, theory that is somewhat myth and somewhat reality that Republicans paid a price uh, for that in the fall of, two, if, of 1998 uh, and that they, uh, they lost uh, seats in an election. They should have gained seats 
Uh, are there risks here for, for Democrats? David, I've heard that argument, and I don't agree with it, and here's why. The reason that Bill Clinton didn't get hurt in the impeachment is because it was on such a weak ground. It was He had a, a sex relationship, supposedly, with a girl in the White House, and it was not a... Well, it wasn't supposedly. He acknowledged yeah, it. Yeah. It, it, eventually. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't as if he was bringing her to the Lincoln Room. It was just a very, very... It was an issue dealing with impeachment that people thought was not strong enough to bring an impeachment proceeding. With what is alleged against Trump, it's clearly a crime, what he's, going, what he's done. And I think it's a tremendous difference between the little episode he had with Monica Lewinsky and this. So I don't agree that it would wind up helping the Republicans. You think voters will be receptive to the, to the arguments, at least those voters who are accessible to Democrats? Yes, and, and I'm not saying that I believe there will be a conviction in the Senate. But Nancy has a different role to play. She is the one that does the impeaching. The Senate does the conviction or no conviction, acquittal. And I think her job and her mind is, I have, this is something that I believe is impeachable, and I have a constitutional obligation to do something about it. Let me ask you something about this. The president said if he were removed from office via this process, there would be a civil war in the country. And, you know, it was an appalling thing to say, but, uh, but he wasn't joking about it. Well, remember, it wasn't uh, something he came up with. Uh, some preacher yes, he, he, yeah, said, that's right. said and he that, embraced uh, it. Boy, the minute he saw that, he glammed onto that. But isn't there some truth to that, that there would be, that, and he would probably help propagate that, there'd be quite a bit of resistance. But I don't, there's not going to be a civil war. We have, our institutions are too strong for Donald Trump to ruin them. We have a, a independent military for sure. He may be the commander in chief, but there's not a chance in hell that the people at the Pentagon are going to be involved in anything like that. So... In terms of uh, the Democratic candidates, we, we talked about how uh, clever in his own way Trump can be. This whole thing was, uh, at its core, an attempt to weaken Joe Biden as a candidate who's leading him in the polls right now. And he has thrust front and center these questions about Hunter Biden. This notion of corruption has been debunked by a lot of the media, but uh, but there are these questions as to why Hunter Biden was was even involved uh, in Ukraine. Do you think that he has uh, that he has tarnished Biden in any way? Is this going to be a problem for Biden in the long term? This repetitive meme out there. Joe Biden has a lot of uh, strong suits, but one of the things that Joe Biden is admired for is his life story. He's had a lot of lot of difficult times in his life, and. Um, I think for now, someone to pick on his remaining son <laughs> that he basically helped raise after, his, after the boy's mother was killed, uh, Bo and Hunter's mother, um, I just think they're gone too far. I don't think that anyone's going to accept the, the fact that uh, Joe Biden's son is some kind of person that's going to drag down Joe Biden. I don't think so. It might not, it might not make Hunter look very good. But I don't think it's going to hurt Joe Biden. But you, you would agree that it, it probably wasn't that prudent for, him, for, for Hunter to be accepting of large fees from a Ukrainian oligarch while his father was vice president. I think that uh, it's not something that uh, is going to help Joe. Well, where do you think the race is right now? Joe Biden's race to lose. We all know that 
Elizabeth Warren is, I mean, she's doing well. She's taking tens of thousands of selfie pictures with people every time she gets a chance up around 75, 80,000 of them now, I understand it. So she's doing very well. You said she's doing well here in Nevada. She's doing very well here in Nevada. We're the third state in the primary succession. So I think she's doing well. Uh, Bernie is third. But after Bernie, it's uh, they drop off pretty significantly. Um, you... You know, I, I, I recall getting a call from Senator Barack Obama in the spring of 2006, and he came back from a meeting with you, and he said, I just had the most unusual conversation that I thought I'd better report uh, with, uh, with Harry Reid. And he said, and I said, what happened? He said he encouraged me to run for president. And actually, that conversation was a big precipitant in terms of advancing his thinking about possibly running uh, in 2008. You've also had something to do with Elizabeth Warren being where Elizabeth Warren is right now. You recruited her to head up the oversight panel on the bank bailout. You recruited her for the Senate race in Massachusetts. Barack Obama, I can remember the first time I ever heard his name. I was in the House gym. I was a retired member. I was in the Senate, but I, always, I went to the House gym for many years. And Abner Mikva, who had been chief of staff yeah. for Clinton and a judge, he's from Chicago. Former congressman from Chicago. And he said, Chicago, I've got Illinois. the greatest person going to run for the U.S. Senate. And I said, who could that be? He said, his name is Barack Obama. I said, what are you talking about? Barack Obama? What kind of a name is that? That's exactly what I said to him. Well, we all know now what kind of a name it was. I, Abner Mikvah was right, I was wrong. But I still, when he came to the Senate, I watched him. Now, I, 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 I wrote a book, and I yes. mentioned this in my book. And I say this about Barack Obama, but understand his response to me was not done in a form of being a braggart, being conceited. He had given a speech on the Senate floor and went into a quorum call, I walked over and looked down at him. He was sitting at his desk and I was standing. And I said, Senator, that was really a, really a good speech. He looked up at me so seriously. He said, yes, I have a gift. Now, I know that sounds, oh, who the hell does he think he is? But think about that. This man had a gift of communication. He has that. Before he came to the Senate, he wrote a couple books on subject. Who cares? He wrote a book about his growing up your dad had a dad from yes, Kenya. Dreams from my father. And they were bestsellers. He, and he didn't have somebody write the book. He wrote it. Yeah. I talked to him uh, five days ago. How's your book coming? He said, oh, I said, said, boy, I made a mistake. I should have written those other books myself because I'm writing this. I have to write this one on my own. Uh, nobody helps him. So I had a sense that Barack Obama, it was a time for someone as articulate as, as he, someone who could really command an audience. I just felt it was a time for Barack Obama. And I would he also had opposed the Iraq war, which was a, yeah. an asset. So, but, but my question just, I want to talk about him again a little later, but my question is, Elizabeth Warren, okay. ex, talk, talk about her. But I was, I'd read some stuff, basically a couple of reviews of her book, and I was fascinated about that. The two-income so, trap about yeah, the middle so, class. Yeah. So I called her, and she said she was a doing a party for some of her students at her home. I called her, and, you know, I don't have a very loud voice, and she couldn't hear me very well. She said, who's this? Is it Harry Reid? I'm the majority leader of the Senate. Oh, she said. 
I said, I want you to come visit me in Washington. So she came down, brought her daughter with her. I think her daughter's name was uh, Amelia. Yes. And uh, I told her I wanted to put her on my debt commission. I said, I think you would do a good job. So she said, well, let me think about it. And said, she said, I'll take it. And uh, she was immediately confirmed as the chair of that board mm -hmm. and did such a good job. She was good, so good that we did the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform bill, and she came up with the idea to have a consumer affairs department. Right. And um, we thought that that would be a good spot for her. The president thought it would be a good place. President Obama wanted to put her there. But the and he did for to set the thing up. Yeah, yes, but we couldn't get her the job because the Republicans opposed it, and frankly, a couple of my Democrats opposed her. Why so, did they oppose her? Well, she um, damn sure knew more than they knew. And they were afraid of her. She knew she knew Wall Street, and Wall Street they were up in arms that she would ruin our country. So they made. Is that a problem now, Senator? Uh, is that a problem for her now? I think that uh, she proved that what they should have done. They should have given her the job because they didn't give her the job. We had her run for the Senate. <laughs> yeah, she said yeah. she'd still be there if yeah. they'd yeah. given her the job. But, but they didn't do that. Now is that still a problem? I think she's overcome a lot of the concern that people had about her. Uh, she was in the Senate. I put her on the banking committee. Some people said you shouldn't do that. She's a flamethrower. She never surprised anybody, never surprised the ranking member, the chairman of the banking committee. She's a team player. And I think that... You put her in leadership as well. I sure did. Yeah, so you, you see her as, as, as Lyndon, a... As Lyndon Johnson said... Um, <laughs> I know what he said. <laughs> yes, go ahead, say it. Yeah, as Lyndon Johnson said, he'd rather have them on the inside in the tent because it's better to have them pissing out than pissing in. <laughs> and uh, there is a concern uh, as well that's expressed by some establishment Democrats that she is uh, too far left, that her Medicare for all, eliminating private insurance, um, you know, free college, free other things and so on, that th this well, will... I, I think that that's, uh, let's just wait. For example, Medicare for All, I asked me, how do you feel about that? I said, I think what we need to do first is let's make sure Obamacare is strengthened again. Mm -hmm. Republicans have done everything they can to hurt it. Let's strengthen it. We almost got the public option the first time. That's as good as Medicare for All anyway. And so, That's not what she's saying, though. Well, but I think you give her some time. I think that she's not in love with that. I think she, you'll wait and see how that all turns out. So I, you think she's more pragmatic than Oh, people. I know she's pragmatic. Just wait. Um, do you think the party itself, there, there, there's this lament that the party is drifting left? David, and you and I have been involved in democratic politics for a long time. Yes. And we know that the primary, the... Democrats are pulled way to the left, and it used to be that Republicans were pulled far to the right, but now they have no, nothing other than what Trump wants. But I think that what's going on now is no different than what's happened in years past. Primary, they're always pulled to the left. That's what the parties do to candidates. And the general election, you oh, see. Oh, yeah, they move quickly. It's, that's what history's all about. So when you decided to retire uh, from the Senate, you said, I want to go out on top on the top of my game. I don't want to be a 42-year-old trying to become a designated hitter, which I loved as a baseball <laughs> fan. I love the reference. I know you're a baseball fan as well. 
Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are uh, older now than you were then. And as we speak, Senator Sanders is recovering from a heart attack, and we obviously wish him a speedy recovery. But here's, let me ask you an indelicate question. Uh, knowing what you know about that job, are they too old to be running for president? I think that uh, what we've seen around the world with older men and women running governments, health care, medicine is so much different than it was five years ago, certainly 15 years ago. And I'm not really concerned about age. It's, you know, you take uh, President Carter's now 95 years old. Yeah. Still very active. He fell yesterday and had a bump on his head. Had and a then skip. went out and built houses yeah. again. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, so I, I don't, I'm not really sold on certain age means you're not qualified for the job. I think that the race is Joe Biden's to lose. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. I think that he's got Elizabeth Warren breathing down his throat. Um, but after that, there's not, Bernie's number three, but he's not. And do you think this race is basically a race between the two of them? Unless something changes, it is. Because the other candidates uh, are, you know, if you drop down after Bernie, they're not, numbers are really not very strong. Kamala Harris is fourth, but um, it appears to me that she's, uh, if she doesn't, she should have her eye on vice president. I think she's a very strong candidate to be vice president. You've said positive things about Kamala Harris. Where where do you see her in this race now? I think um, Kamala Harris is a very, very talented woman coming from the huge state of California, being elected numerous times uh, by the people of California. And one reason that I'm so impressed with her, she came to my home, and um, she didn't dwell on all the conversation with me. My wife was there, Landa was there, and she directed a lot of her inquiries toward my wife. I thought that showed a lot of class. I was extremely impressed by that. And why hasn't she taken off? Well, that's... um, a relative term. She's running fourth, and uh, she's uh, doing better than people after her, that's for sure. After her, it drops off significantly. I think that um, she is somebody that is um, to be reckoned with. She's, she, got not, she may go away a little bit, but not very far. She's something mm-hmm. we're going to be dealing with for quite a long time. Here we are in this remarkable City of Las Vegas, your city, by the Bellagio Hotel, where the great water show goes on from time to time, in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. But this isn't where your story began. A lot of politicians talk about their hard scrabble story. Yours is something of a completely different order. Talk about growing up in Searchlight, Nevada. David, I never felt uh, poor. Or I felt, you know, I felt I was had a pretty good life. It wasn't until my dear brother died, and he's quite a bit older than I, and his little daughter, my niece, sent me some pictures. She had gone through some of his belongings and sent me pictures of me and Searchlight. I, I couldn't believe that's how I was raised. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, the house was just made out of railroad ties that had been picked up from the railroad. No running water. And, yeah, no, and no inside toilet, of course. And I didn't realize till I saw those pictures, damn, that wasn't, I didn't remember that was that bad. <laughs> yeah, it was a mining town that got hard on its luck. 
Well, the number one industry when I was a boy there was prostitution. Um, at one time, there were 13 brothels and searchlights, 13. And how and many people in the whole town? 200, because it was during the time when they had military bases in southern Nevada. And uh, on payday, that place would be like Grand Central Station. Did you know as a kid what was going on? Well, yes, I did, but it paid no I thought no, not much different there than any place else. I'm the only senator in the history of the world that learned to swim in a whorehouse swimming pool. <laughs> they had a law that said you couldn't have a brothel close to a school. I read that they moved the school in order to accommodate the brothel. That's very true. That's in my book. It's true. They also only had school up to eighth grade. Right. No, you had to no, hitchhike. No kindergarten. And no kindergarten. But yeah. you had to hitchhike. Well, I... 45 miles yes, to go I, to, I, to I, high school. So I didn't do it every day, but I did do it. As a young kid, you came uh, to Henderson right outside of Las Vegas where you... 46 still, miles away. And uh, there, some things happened there that were life-changing. Oh, One is yeah. you met your wife, yeah. Landra. What, uh, tell, me, tell me about that. Well, you know, I came over from Searchlight dressed different than the other kids. My hair wasn't the same. But people were pretty nice to me. And um, I've had a lot of elections. The most important election in my life, I was a junior in high school, and I was elected junior class treasurer. I know that sounds like nothing to everybody else, but to me, I'd finally been accepted. That was, to me, the most important election of my life. Before we, we leave Searchlight, um, I need to talk to you about your, 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 your dad in particular. He was a, a, a miner, he was a brawler, he was a drinker, uh, you wrote that you had to intervene at times to protect your mother from your, yeah. from your dad. It sounded like a very, very difficult environment for a kid. Well, my dad was a big, tough guy. He drank way too much. There were times when it became necessary for my brother and I to intervene. Now, one-on-one, -on -one we couldn't have taken our dad but both of us could. So we didn't hit him, but we took him down. And he was so mad, but he couldn't handle two of us. Because you didn't want him to lay hands on your mom. That's right, he wasn't doing it. That's why we did it in the first place. So he meant well. My dad was never physically abusive to me. But I can remember one of the best days of my life turned out being one of the worst. I had the opportunity to go to Caesar's Palace here in Las Vegas. I had the good fortune of being able to come and spend two hours with Muhammad Ali. He was in his trunks, had a bathrobe on, he was getting ready to go spar. And you were a boxer. Oh yeah, and so I had such a good time with him. And he was so personable, so nice. So left there and went back to my office. As I walked in, Joni Shea was the receptionist of my law office. She said, your mom's on the phone. I picked the phone up and she said, your pop shot himself. And so he was dead at that time. So had to go out and was on the bed there, blood all over. He was still there when you got there. Yeah, so I remember that. Now suicide was um, something that happens to other people. And that's the way it is with people who have a loved one that commits suicide. Never do you expect it. Yes. And uh, 
but I learned a lot about suicide. But it took me quite a while to acknowledge that it, my dad killed himself. Yes. And it wasn't until we had a hearing, we were doing a hearing on senior depression. And during that hearing, uh, Mike Wallace testified, the famous uh, journalist. And he said, you know, I wanted to die for years. Suffered from depression? Yes. So, and he said, now, he said, I talk to somebody once in a while, I take some medication, I want to live. First time I acknowledged that my dad had, had committed suicide. Sometimes people in a fit of passion will purchase a handgun to do bad things with it. Mr. President, even as my dad did, kill themselves. And that hearing was so important. We have done so little to understand suicide. Well, my, uh, my father committed suicide as no. well, Senator, and uh, I was 19 years old when it happened. I didn't talk about it for 30 years. Yeah, I know it took time. And it, yeah. was a, it was a terrible mistake yeah. because I know, there's a stigma so yes. associated with it that is terribly unfair and wrong. It's not a defect of character. It's mental illness, and it has to be treated like oh, any yes. other illness. Yes. And as we look back, if we had known what we were doing, we could have seen this coming. Because yes. he was a terribly withdrawn introvert his whole life, and uh, he had been sick and killed himself. You you went to law school yes. uh, in the East after graduating uh, from Utah State. That's right. And you you had a, what what in retrospect is like an incredible, uh, incredibly ironic job uh, to put yourself through I law school. I was a policeman. School. You Capital were a policeman, policeman where? Yeah. Capitol Police, yeah. So your job was to protect yes. members of Congress. Yes. You came back to Nevada and you were practicing law and you pretty quickly got involved in, in politics, first yeah, on a sure hospital did. governance board, yeah, yeah. then the state legislature. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and by the time you were 30, you were lieutenant governor yeah, that of was a Nevada. Race, that was a race. Uh, and so we're getting ready to run for re-election. Re and one of them says to him, why don't you run for lieutenant governor? I said, lieutenant governor? never thought of that before. And before I left there, they had typed out a press release that I was running for lieutenant governor. So I went home. I said, Lander, I'm running for lieutenant governor. That was it. <laughs> yeah. And Did she I, think that was a good idea? She didn't, she didn't pay any attention to me. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and then four years later, you're 34 years old, you run for the United States Senate. In a year that was a historically good Democratic year in the midst of Watergate, and you lost. By 524 votes. And then one year later, you lost a race for mayor of Las Vegas. So you're a, you're a preening peacock at 30. And you're on your way loser. up. And by the time you're 35, you're a two-time loser. Did you ever, did you think that was the end of your political career? Well, I thought about it, but one reason I worked so hard to make sure it wasn't the case I didn't want those bastards to think they'd buried me very early. So I just kept plugging along and looked for my opportunities. And my friend, Michael Callahan, who was governor. Who was, was a mentor of yours. Oh, he was your history teacher, he, your boxing coach. He was the only mentor I really ever had. And uh, he appointed me to the State Gaming Commission. And uh, I was chairman of that. And that was a time, a very, very difficult time in the history of the state of Nevada. Organized crime came out of the woodwork. I, we always thought it was here, but and it was here big time. And I survived through that. Yeah, you survived through it. You're, you're being modest. Uh, like, your friend the governor appointed you head of the, the gambling 
uh, commission, and you almost you almost got killed doing it. Oh yeah, they put a bomb on our car, and uh, uh, and then as you point out, you, it was actually your wife who saw some suspicious wires yeah, the car, coming out of your the car. The car wasn't running very well, and she's a uh, not much of a mechanic, and that's an understatement. And she lifted up the hood, and she could see these wires down there, so she stopped and. Uh, the fire truck came, fire engines and police came, and I can still see my little boy. He was five years old at the time, looking out the window and and seeing all the police and everything, and I'm sure that had a, yeah, I know it had an impact on his life. And so that must have made, when you finally went, when you finally got elected to Congress, what, 1982? Yes. There was a new district from, right. from Las Vegas yeah. you, area, and you got elected. Yeah. Must have everything must have seemed like child's play after uh, oh, dealing with you know, the mob. I, I love that job so much. I kept thinking, am I going to have to pay somebody? I should be paying somebody. They're paying me to do this. It was just so wonderful. Um, in the preface of your autobiography, you wrote about a, and I'm quoting now, a presidency that has tested our values, usurped our rights as Americans and ushered in a, quote, era of crippling partisan rancor during which the president's opponents were branded as insufficiently patriotic and you called the president a liar. These were not comments about the incumbent president. These were uh, comments that you made uh, in 2008 about uh, George W. Bush. President Bush is coming to Nevada today. Um, by the time the show runs, he will already have been here. And I've written him a letter um, welcoming to Nevada. I can't go to the event. It's at nighttime, and I don't do too well at night anymore. Uh, at the present time, maybe in a month or two, I'll be going to events at nighttime. Um, but I, in this letter, said to him, you know, I was the leader, you were president, and we knocked heads. But I look back with such nostalgia to those days because... I lament the fact that you're not there now. And that's really how I feel about it. He's going to probably check the authenticity of the letter, you know. No, I don't think he will. I think he knows, <laughs> he knows that uh, a lot of what we did was uh, partisan bickering. I had a job to do, and I did the best I could. But it does speak to the fact that um, this moment has been building up for some time. Trump didn't create... Uh, this moment. He's exploited it, perhaps. He's David, exacerbated I, it. I've said this. People think Trump created the Republican Congress. That's not true. The Republican Congress created Trump. They, the Republicans, look at the Senate today. They don't do anything there than do judges. They do nothing. You can't vote on an amendment. And that's why I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying, filibuster's gone. I don't accept it. It's not a question if it's going to be gone. It's when, and it's gone. The Senate, as we've known it, is gone. The Senate is going to become another House of Representatives. That's not the end of the world, you know. Instead of having 60-vote threshold, it'll be a 50-vote threshold. That's a democracy. And it's a bicameral legislature, the six-year terms. It's still going to be good. But you understand it's not going to be the way it was. Talk to me about Mitch McConnell. He was your counterpart throughout your uh, your time as as leader. What kind of discussions did you have about the <coughs> sort of shredding of norms and uh, institutional uh, institutional concerns? Like what, when he held up the Merrick Garland nomination for the 
better part of a year and well, said he wouldn't take it up. Did you guys sit down and talk about this privately? Mitch McConnell and I were together a lot in leadership. He was a whip when I was the whip. He was a Republican leader when I was a Democratic leader. So I know Mitch McConnell very well, and I'm not going to disparage him here today, but I have been somewhat disappointed. I think what he did with the Springport is something that will go down in history as a very dark time in the history of this country. To hold up a presidential selection for a Supreme Court nomination for a year until there's a change of presidency is not the way the country should run. I think that... Uh, He's now said that he wouldn't do that if there were an opportunity to appoint another judge. Well, the damage has been done, and I said that's a dark stage in the history of our country. I hope he's right. I hope he wouldn't do something like that again. Although I think the implication was he wouldn't do it if, if there was a vacancy while Donald Trump was in the final year of his administration. Well, that doesn't say much then. Right. Now, that's not a positive thing for Mitch. Um, back in 2016, you were briefed, as were the other leaders, on what Russia was up to uh, in our election. You were more outspoken about it uh, than anyone else. There was a time when the president wanted all four leaders, Republicans and Democrats, to sign a joint statement about this and to say, uh, issue a warning to Russia. Why didn't that happen? Jay Johnson came to visit with us. He had the FBI with him. And he proceeded to tell the leaders of the House and the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, that the Russians were messing with our election. And he thought every governor should reach out to him for help to make sure the elections are protected. And I wanted a letter written by me and McConnell, Pelosi, and uh, at the time, whoever the Republican Boehner, was, yeah. Boehner, yeah. And uh, Mitch wouldn't sign the letter. And did he say why? Yes, he did. He said he thought the elections were not federal government should stay out of them. It should be a state function. And uh, we got a letter, but it was so weak, it was just, it was, it was meaningless, the letter that we finally got out. Do you think that he felt that it would disadvantage uh, Trump I, if there was such a letter? I, I don't think it was Trump. I thought he, I think he believes that it would disadvantage the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you and the president agree on is neither of you were that crazy about the way uh, Jim Comey handled the election at the FBI. Well, I think, I think Comey uh, elected Trump. I think that uh, he, he was, he's a Republican. He didn't want to seem that he was partisan. And um, he was so unfair that right before crunch time in the election, he came out and talked about some of uh, Hillary's emails, which really ruined her getting elected president. So he's the cause of her not winning, in my opinion. Do you think he did enough relative, because the charge from the Trump side is that he was the one who started this investigation and it was partisanly, partisan motivated against Trump. Well, I, I think that he was afraid to take a stand for fear he would be seen as a partisan and he wound up hurting everybody. He, it was a really a bad move. And every, every time I see him in a self-righteous manner uh, talking about people should do the right thing, he should have done the right thing. How much culpability do you feel for 
some of the partisan rancor. You mentioned earlier that you regretted some of the things <coughs> that you said about uh, President Bush, but you did what you needed to do in the role that you uh, were in. Are there other things no, that... I don't, I don't really... I don't, I don't go back and lament what I did or didn't do. I did what I did. I, you know, I was always the kind of guy that, after I took a test, test in college, my friends would stand around and talk about that test. How what, what, did you do this? Did you do that? Not me. Test's over with. I'm through. And I don't go back and say I could have been nicer. I could have been meaner. I could have done. I just did at the time what I thought was the right thing. And that's the one thing about me, David. No one ever had to guess how I stood on an issue. I was always very, very candid about how I felt. What is, do you, do you think all these shattered norms are are gone? Is it like uh, Humpty Dumpty? You can't put it back together again? These Democrat norms, <laughs> Senate norms, uh, things that we took for granted 30 years ago when you were, were in the I, I think the Senate's been damaged significantly, and it's not going to be put back together very quickly. In the foreseeable future, we've got a Senate that's going to become more like the House of Representatives than it was the old Senate. Meaning very partisan? Meaning that uh, the collegiality that existed won't exist anymore. It's going to be just like the House, just like the House. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it's, it's, it'll work out great if the leader of the Senate has a president of the same party, but it's not going to work out so well if that's not the case, but that's what you have to deal with. You, you, it sounds that you, like you miss the, the days when you had relationships with Republican colleagues across the aisle. Oh, I, I, I the, the one thing I do, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking back saying I wish I were in the Senate, but I am looking back at the time that Americans should understand how the Senate used to be. You know, I, we had Democratic senators who were always deal makers. We had Republican senators who were deal makers, and that's not a bad word. Legislation, the art of compromise. And once that spirit of compromise is gone, it makes legislation extremely difficult to pass. There was the, the vote that you said that you most regretted was uh, the vote for, to authorize the war in Iraq. Yeah, the, the war in Iraq is the worst foreign policy blunder in the history of the country. And I feel the biggest mistake I made legislatively was voting for that. I voted for that, but within week or 10 days at the most, I realized I'd been misled. General Powell, my friend, he misled me. I'm sure he didn't do it on purpose, but you know what? There's no question that I realized quickly that I was wrong, and I became a tremendous opponent of the war. There have been people that posed up more than I did after that, but I don't know who it would have been. I was really opposed to it. I think that what that war did destabilized that part of the world, and now it's really damaged Europe. We have, no one knows how many Iraqis have been killed, but hundreds of thousands, millions displaced. The whole Middle East is in a state of turmoil. Uh, countries are been just re-engineered. We have migration headed into Europe by the millions because of that war. And it's, uh, even though the governments in that period of time were all, uh, Dictators, at least they were stable dictators, and the country, that, that part of the world was fairly stable. But now it's not. It's terrible. What do you think of the president's uh, decision earlier in the week to uh, 
pull out of northern Syria and leave the Kurds to fend. I mean, he did this in a tweet in the middle of the night sometime. This is one where he's getting Republican opposition as well. Thank goodness. I'm, I'm happy to hear that because that, you know, the Kurds have been our allies. The Kurds have been people we depend on. They're the only good fighters in Iraq. The Shias and the Sunnis are not good fighters. The Kurds are. And to pull a rug out from under them is just not right. There is this hangover, though, among the American people. You pointed out it's now been almost two decades uh, of engagement there. Trillions of dollars, thousands of lives lost. So um, there is a policy reason to stand by your allies. There is a policy reason to try and keep the Turks from slaughtering uh, the Kurds. But when the president says, talks about endless wars, you know, let them fend for themselves and so on, don't you think he's striking a responsive chord out there? I'm sure he is, but it's fairly misleading because we have thousands of troops stationed in Korea and Japan. Uh, They've been there for 40, 50 years or more. Uh, It's because it helps stabilize that part of the world. And I think that we have to be very careful of this knee-jerk reaction. Uh, I'm I'm fairly confident that we're going to have American troops in that part of the world for a long time to come. They may not be combat troops necessarily, but we're going to have to have some of our people there on the ground. For American security. That's right, for American security. The Affordable Care Act, there were very few people who had as much to do with its passage as you, as the leader in the, in the Senate. There were other issues uh, that people wanted to take up, cap and trade on climate change, which is something I know is a great interest of yours uh, now, um, the uh, uh, immigration reform. Um, and you hear in retrospect, well, they should have taken those things up in the first two years. Uh, but I remember getting a call from you explaining why you couldn't and what the, senator ca- what the Senate calendar uh, would endure. Well, but also I had to endure Barack Obama because this good man told me, I would call and say, I can't get the health care bill done. And he would say, it's more important my reelection. We've got to get it done. People have tried to get this done since uh, Harry Truman. And we're, we, 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 I think we can get it done. This Obama speaking. So I felt a tremendous pressure to get it done. And having been raised the way that I was with no health care, my mother had no teeth. Uh, um, we didn't go to doctors. We, you know, it just went. My mother had a searchlight, a TB wagon came through to take x-rays. Hers, she had a negative positive, they thought she had TB. Never even went to the doctor, it was a false positive now, but I can't imagine how she must have worried about it. I did as a little boy. So healthcare was something we had to get done. And it was one of the landmark pieces of legislation in the history of this country. Mm -hmm. It matches Social Security, it matches Medicare, it matches Medicaid. It is an important piece of legislation and it did so much to help so many people. And even though the Republicans have done everything they can to damage the basic bill itself, it's still there, the framework of it. And we need to improve that and we can do that. It was, in my opinion, other than his stellar work in foreign policy, Barack Obama's legislative success, nothing more important than what he did on health care. I obviously don't don't disagree with you, but uh, 
Well, the point I was getting at is there are limits to what one can do as the leader in terms of the Senate calendar. This was an enormous lift. Yeah, David, and we only could get the health care bill done the way we did it. Now, yeah. there were people who said, get it to hell while we found on that finance committee there. They're just driving everybody crazy, endless hearings. But we had to get that done to kind of let the air out of the tires so no one could say we were rushed. We rushed it, and we didn't. We let the finance committee have all the time they needed. Uh, so and I, there were a couple of heroes we had uh, during the time I was leader, and one of them was Chris Dodd. Chris Dodd and I were not very close. He was Ted Kennedy's best friend, and when Kennedy died, Chris was stuck not only with the the banking committee, but he also was stuck with the health committee. Yeah, health health committee to take over for Kennedy. So he was he was a stalwart. He did so much to help us get the health care bill passed. He was on the finance committee. He did so much to help us push this forward. There are a number of heroes, but he was certainly one. Were the votes there? Let's leave healthcare aside. Were the votes there in those two years when you had uh, 59, 60 Democratic senators? Could you have passed comprehensive uh, immigration reform no. out of the Senate? The, the, the national legislature is a very awkward body, and it's really hard to get a lot of big things done because it just takes all the air out of the tires. And it was all we could do to get the health care bill done. We could not have stuck in their immigration reform. We couldn't have stuck in cap and trade. We just couldn't do it. It's not like the House of Representatives. Nancy could get things whipping out over there because it's so easy to do if you have the majority. You can't do that in the Senate. It's a slow process. In part because of the filibuster. That's right. And so when you hear these candidates uh, talk about their uh, ambitious plans, Elizabeth Warren is an example. She she has some very ambitious plans. That's part of the cornerstone of her campaign. I've got a plan for that. And the plans are very much about a more expansive uh, activist government. Do you ever, and others have done, uh, spoken as well, do you ever listen to these things and smile and say, time out, let me, let me give you a reality check well, here? Well, um, Barack Obama was the first to use the presidential directives more than any other president in recent history, or more more than any other president, where he would do an executive order for this because he couldn't get the Republicans to help us get something done in the Senate. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think that a lot of times when they talk about they're going to go there and get this done in the first 100 days, that, you know, it's not going to work. It's not that easy, especially with the dysfunctional Senate we now have. But as I said earlier in this interview, and I'll repeat it here for your viewers, I believe the Senate is going to become more like the House of Representatives in the near future. It's not a question if, it's a question when it's going to be more like the House of Representatives. And that will allow us to get more things done because the filibuster will be meaningless at that time. Interesting. Um, I remember being here in, in Las Vegas in, uh, at the end of the campaign in 2012. I don't know if you remember this. But uh, you asked to see President Obama. I think you wanted him to cut a radio ad for uh, Maisie Hirano, who was running for the Senate in Hawaii. And you thought he, being Hawaiian, could, yeah. could tip, 
tipped that race. And so uh, we met behind uh, the stage in the arena. I remember that, yeah. And uh, you, you, in typically efficient manner, uh, made the case for why you needed him to do it. He agreed to do it. And then there was this moment of silence. And you uh, reached out and you gave him a hug. And, uh, you know, my uh, sense is that you're not that frequent a hugger, that that's not your way. And I was touched by that moment. Why did you feel at that moment that you wanted to give him a hug? He, for me, stood for everything that's good about America. Uh, I have been in government my whole life, but I never came across anyone changed the country and the world as much as he did. You, uh, but more than that, you, you seem to have almost a filial relationship. You took like a filial pride in him, and maybe part of it is that you helped help launch the whole endeavor. Well, I uh, don't hesitate to say on this show, I don't care who's listening, and this is something I don't throw around very often, but I love Barack Obama. I really do. Man to man, I love Barack Obama. I think he's done so much that in my estimation is has been done by someone that no one else could do what he did. He did it alone. Well, alone and with the help of you and well, others. Well, of course he had help, but it's, uh, if you're president of the United States, you don't get anything done unless you have a president that's not standing in the way. How much do you think the opposition to him was motivated uh, by, by, by race? To his credit, Barack Obama never, ever said a word publicly or privately about the race issue. He went out of his way to never bring that up. He did not, but what were your thoughts? He overcame a lot from the time he was a boy in Hawaii, raised by his white grandmother, to the time he was a, became a known as an intellectual genius at Harvard. He's uh, did it on his own. You're someone who has your own extraordinary uh, story. You like, you like people who have a history, who oh, have a story, who I, overcome things. I love the stories of Barack Obama. His grandmother, and he's, they're on the, in the United States, and he, they're from Hawaii, and his grandmother is driving in America, okay? Well, she can't see the signs, so young Barack Obama's up in the passenger side, and he would read the signs for his grandmother. How's that for a story? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Barack Obama's yeah. life. You, you sort of saw the whole Tea Party thing evolve. Oh, I sure did. They, they evolved after me. They were, out, they were out to get me. They were, oh, yeah. and they almost did. They sure did. Uh, but they also, uh, took, uh, they also were the wave that brought in a Republican Senate, oh, yeah. a, re a Republican House. How much was a reaction to the activism, the progressivism of the agenda in, uh, in the first two years of, of Obama? How much was it as a result of the awful economic crisis that just that he was unlucky was a, enough to walk a little, into? A little bit of everything. It was a little bit of it all. The economy had been really bad, and uh, the Activists were out stirring up as much trouble as they could. They thought it was the right thing to do. And uh, it was just a time was perfect for the Tea Party. They came in. They were against everything. And uh, they did pretty well. 
How much was a, a result of organized money behind it? Oh, they didn't do it. Even today, even today, I've, I, on my, I used to get tea party stuff on my phone six, seven, eight, ten times a day. So I unsubscribed. But even though I've unsubscribed, I cut it, they cut back, but they're still out doing it. Mm -hmm. Sending stuff all the time, Tea Party. Um, you're wearing a hat. You were diagnosed in the spring of 2018. Lost my hair. Yes, with cancer. Yeah. Uh, and you said when they find cancer in your pancreas, you're dead. We're here 17 months later, and you're very much alive. Well, you know, um, one of my friends wrote a very long column for the New York Times. Uh, in effect, he said, Reed's dead. Uh, and I think I said at the time, you know, my um, Mark Twain, you know, the rumors of my death are exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in the last uh, three or four years, I've come up with tremendous uh, medical advances that I have the good fortune of being part of now. And, uh, you know, my cancer's not in remission, but, you know, I'm still doing okay. And uh, the future doesn't look so bad right now. You're... Uh it strikes me, though, I remember a story you told President Obama when he first took office. You said you were a boxer uh, as a young man, and you said, I wasn't the fastest and I wasn't the strongest, but uh, I knew how to take a punch. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, that's kind of the story of part your of, life, and this is part of it. Part of it, David, was my nose, my nose. I had a great nose for fighting. <laughs> I, I, there's very little bone in my nose. So I have been hit in the face so many times. I have never, ever had a bloody nose. But you've been knocked down in other ways in life. Yeah, I've been knocked down fighting too. But, um, and losing elections and yeah. uh, a, a range of other things. Right. So uh, that may have something to do with the fact that you're sitting here with me uh, today well, you know, after that bad diagnosis. One reason, uh, last time I ran... I said, and it was uh, publicly, after I'd already announced I was going to run, I said, if the, here's what I said, the bastards left me alone, I probably wouldn't run again, but they thought I couldn't win. Mm -hmm. So I ran, I beat them. Yeah. When, how, how do you hope you'll be remembered? David, um, I really honestly, here's how I hope I'd be remembered. I have five children, and I'm 19 grandchildren. I want those children and grandchildren to understand what a love affair I've had with my little wife. She is a most wonderful human being. I'm sure there have been marriages as happy as ours, but none happier. I, I'm still in love with my wife after having been married 60 years as I was when we were teenagers when we met. More important than any of your public accomplishments. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's all I want is people to remember that uh, he had a great marriage and that was a good example for others. I hope that, and I hope that's the case because... I've had a love affair with this little woman for a long, long time. You know, uh, one of the things that was your signature, if you could call it that, and I was the, on the other side of the phone for this, was uh, you would finish a conversation and you would be gone. Yeah. Well, but you never... President Obama always still jokes about that. I hung up on him. But here's, here's the way it is. I'm not much for small talk. The conversation was over. We'd done our business. There's no need to talk anymore. So I would just say. But not even a goodbye. No, not most of the time, not a goodbye. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.